You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the Fifth Gospel from the Akashic Record, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is Lecture 7, given in Berlin on the 4th of November, 1913. Specific Occult Studies Now make it possible to discover something we may call the Fifth Gospel. If you consider everything I have said with reference to the mystery of Golgotha over the years, you may recall that some things said in order to explain the four Gospels also included statements about the life of the Christ Jesus which are not to be found in those Gospels. For instance, the story of the two Jesus children. Many of the things found in holy spiritual records are tremendously important for our age. And it seems the time has come when those who are ready and prepared should gradually learn about them. For the time being, nothing given from those sources should go beyond this group. But you can consider it to be something which is destined to pour into human souls in the present age, so that people may gain a much more vivid picture of the activity of the Christ Jesus than has so far been possible. From my first introductory lecture, you will have realized that today we need to grasp the Christ Jesus figure in a much more conscious way than has been the case in earlier times. If anyone should object that it is not in accord with the evolution of Christianity to say something new about the life of Christ Jesus, let me remind you of the conclusion of the Gospel of John, where it says quite clearly that the Gospels present only some of the events that happened, and that the world itself could not contain the books to describe them all. This can give us the courage and strength to present new things about the life of Christ Jesus at a time of genuine need. And we can be confident that only the narrow-minded will raise objections to this. Let me remind you of something I have said on a number of occasions, including here in Berlin. Two Jesus children were born at the beginning of our era. We also know that at birth the spiritual essence of Zarathustra incarnated in one of the two boys, who then lived with this spiritual essence of Zarathustra until about his twelfth year, the time when the Gospel of Luke tells us Jesus was taken to Jerusalem by his parents, who lost the boy, only to find him again among the teachers, expounding the scriptures in a way that surprised those teachers, whose function it was to expound them, and also his parents. I have shown that the description given in the Gospel of Luke reveals how the Zarathustra spirit having lived in one Jesus child for about twelve years, went over into the other Jesus child, who was also twelve at the time, and who had, until then, been of an entirely different cast of mind. 
Thus the Jesus child of the Nathan line in the house of David did not have the Zarathustra spirit in him until he reached his twelfth year, but he had that spirit in him after that. Using the means I have spoken of on several occasions, a method that may be called, quote, reading the Akashic record, close quote, we can gain further insight into the life of the Jesus child, who now also had the Zarathustra spirit in him. It is possible to distinguish three periods in his life, the first extending from about the twelfth to the eighteenth year, the second from the eighteenth to the twenty-fourth year, and the third from approximately his twenty-fourth year to the baptism in the Jordan, that is, until about his thirtieth year. We realize, therefore, that the Jesus child, who in his twelfth year received the Zarathustra spirit into him, appeared to the teachers of the Israelites as someone with elementary knowledge of the nature of Jewish dogma and the nature of ancient Hebrew law, and was able to speak about these in a proper way. The ancient Hebrew world had thus come alive in the child's soul. Everything known about the Hebrews' relationship to their God, generally speaking the message the Hebrew God was believed to have given to Moses, lived in him. In general terms we may say that a great treasure of the sacred Hebrew teachings was alive in Jesus as he lived in Nazareth, following his father's trade, given up to this knowledge and letting it live in his soul. A study of the Akashic record shows that everything he thus knew became a source of much inner doubt and pain for him, profoundly and deeply troubled in his soul, he felt that long ago, in very different times of human evolution, a grandiose message or revelation had come from the worlds of the spirit to the souls of such individuals as were able to receive this at the time, their inner powers being very different then. In particular, Jesus came to realize that those people had been able to look up to the spiritual powers that came to revelation, and that they had a very different way of understanding those revelations than his own generation. The inner powers of his generation had come down from those earlier ones. They were not directed upward in the same way, and they were all people had when they sought to understand what had once come from above. Many times he would say to himself, all this was no, once made known. We can still know it today, but we can no longer understand it as fully as the people did who originally received it. As more of this was revealed to him, entering into heart and mind, like on the occasion when he stood before the Jewish teachers and expounded their own laws to them, he realized how impossible it was for the people of his time to enter into the ancient Hebrew revelations. It seemed to him that the people, the souls of his time, were like the descendants of people who had once received a great who had once received great revelations, but were now no longer able to reach the heights of such revelations. Once these 
would have entered into their souls as bright flames with tremendous warmth. Now he had to say to himself, the glory that had been so deeply experienced in earlier times had faded and in many respects seemed empty. This is what he felt with regard to many things that now entered his soul through inspiration. From his twelfth to his eighteenth year, his soul entered more and more deeply into the Jewish teachings, feeling that they were less and less able to meet his needs and indeed caused him increasing pain and suffering. It fills the soul with the most profound feeling of tragedy when you perceive how Jesus of Nazareth had to suffer because of what had become of the sacred teachings in a later generation. And he would often say to himself, as he sat there quietly dreaming and pondering, quote, The teachings once came down from above. Revelation was given to humanity. Now, however, the people are no longer to be found who are able to understand them. Close quote. This gives a general impression of the inner mood felt by Jesus of Nazareth. It was active in his reflections in the brief moments left to him during the days when he was working as a tradesman, a joiner in Nazareth. From his eighteenth to his twenty-fourth year, he traveled in nearby regions and also further away. During those journeyman years, he worked in and visited all kinds of places in Palestine and surrounding regions. Those are years when the human heart and mind are young and receptive. And he came to know many people and their way of thinking how they lived with ancient sacred teachings, or at least as much as they were able to understand of these. We can certainly understand how all those inner joys, sufferings and disappointments during those six years would burden the soul and impress the mind of this young man very differently from the way they would any other person. Every soul was a riddle he had to solve. In every soul something also told him it was waiting for something that was to come. The many regions he visited included some where pagan people lived. One scene stands out in the spiritual panorama of his journeyings in Palestine and surrounding countries between his eighteenth and twenty-fourth years, for it made a very profound impression on him. You see him arrive at one of the many pagan places of worship set up for pagan gods, whatever their names, in Asia, Africa, and Europe. The ceremonies held there resembled those celebrated in the mysteries. There people had understood them, but in these pagan places they had become mere outer ceremony. Jesus of Nazareth came to one of these places. The priests had abandoned it and the rites were no longer held. It was a region where people lived in poverty and misery, disease and great hardship. Their place of worship had been abandoned by the priests. But when Jesus of Nazareth came, they gathered around, a people plagued by disease and the miseries of poverty, but above all by the thought, quote, This is the place where we used to gather, where the priests performed the offering rites with us and showed us the works of the gods. Now the place is empty and deserted. The spiritual observer here notes a particular trait in the soul of Jesus. It had already been apparent on his earlier journeyings 
that people would always receive him in a very special way. His fundamental mood of soul was such that something gentle and kind went out to the people among whom he found himself. He went from place to place, working in joinery shops here and there, and would then sit and talk with the others. Every word he said was received in a special way, because it was spoken in a special way, full of gentleness and kindness of heart. It was not so much what he said, but how he said it, that poured a hint of magic into people's hearts. He would be warmly received everywhere. People did not see him the way they did other people. They saw a special radiance in his eyes and could feel something special speaking to them from his heart. For the troubled, suffering people, standing by their altar and seeing a stranger come in their midst, it was as if the thought came alive in their hearts, a priest has come to us who will perform the offering rite again at the altar. Such was the mood that arose at his coming. Yet as he stood before the congregation, a moment came when he felt as if taken out of himself, with his soul in an unusual state, and he saw dreadful things. He saw entities we may call demons, both by the altar and among the gathering crowd. And he realized what those demons signified. He realized that pagan sacrifices had gradually turned into something that held a magical attraction for such demons. When Jesus had reached the altar, people had streamed there, but so had the demons that had gathered around the altar for earlier offering rites. For he realized that such pagan rites derived from the offerings formerly made in good places to the true gods, insofar as these could be known, and that these rites had gradually fallen into decline. The secret knowledge had become degenerate, and instead of streaming to the gods, the offerings and the priests' thoughts attracted demons. The Luciferic and Aramonic powers he now saw around him in his altered state of mind. When the people who had gathered around him saw that he was in an altered state of mind and therefore fell down, they fled from the place. The demons remained, however. Jesus of Nazareth had become aware of the decline of the old Jewish teachings and now even more emphatically of the decline of the pagan mysteries. Between his twelfth and eighteenth years he gained inner experience of the truth that the spiritual gifts which in the past had warmed and illuminated human hearts and minds could no longer come alive for them and this had led to growing inner emptiness. He saw that the old beneficial influence of the gods had been replaced by the activities of Luciferic and Aramonic demons. Because of what he saw around him in the spirit as he stood by the altar, he realized that paganism had deteriorated. Enter with heart and mind into those inner experiences, into the way he discovered what had become of the influence of the ancient gods and of human communion with those gods. Enter into the feeling that would arise in the process. Humanity must be thirsting for something new, for misery must fill human souls unless something new comes to them. 
The demons had taken note of him, as it were, before they followed the fleeing crowd. Jesus of Nazareth remained behind, and then had a kind of vision, a vision we shall discuss more fully later on. It was as if the process of human evolution sounded forth in a special way from the spiritual heights for him. He had a vision of which I will speak in another lecture, perceiving something like a macrocosmic Our Father. He entered into what had once been proclaimed to humanity as pure word, the pure Logos. Jesus of Nazareth came home from his journey at about the time, this is what spiritual research tells us, when his father died. In the years that followed, from his twenty-fourth year until the time generally known as that of the baptism in the Jordan, he became acquainted with Essene teachings and the Essene community. The community had settled in a valley in Palestine. Their central seat was in an isolated position, but they had settlements everywhere, including a kind of settlement in Nazareth. They had made it their mission to evolve a special lifestyle, where the inner life was specially developed, but remained in harmony with outer life. This made it possible to develop a higher level of experience and enter into a form of communion with the world of the Spirit. Those who reached certain levels of development rose to the highest gift the Essene community could offer to its members, a kind of union with the higher world. The Essenes had thus evolved a schooling that developed the human soul, putting something within its reach that had generally gone beyond the reach of human souls at that stage of evolution. The old connection with the divine and spiritual world. They sought to achieve this by means of strict rules governing everyday life. They sought to achieve it by completely withdrawing from contact with the outside world. An Essene would have no personal property. Essenes came from all parts of the world, as it then was. But to be an Essene, you had to give everything you owned to the Essene community, which alone had property. If someone who wanted to be an Essene had property in some place, he would give his house and any land that went with it to the Essene community. They thus had properties in many different places. This was an odd principle, one that would no doubt give offense today, but it was essential if the Essenes were to achieve their aims. They developed the inner life by devoting themselves to a life of purity, giving themselves up to wisdom and also to charity based on love. It was they who did good deeds wherever they went, and their mission took them everywhere. Healing the sick was a part of their ethos, but they also helped people in a material way. A principle they used, one we cannot perhaps, one we cannot and perhaps should not imitate in our present social, day social order, was that an Essene might help and support anyone he considered to be in need, but not a member of his family. The Essene ideal was to perfect the soul so that it could once again relate to the world of the spirit. The intention was to keep the temptations of Araman and Lucifer away. Another way of defining the Essene ideal would be to say, an Essene would do everything possible to keep those temptations at a distance, 
He would try to live in such a way that the aramanic tendency to drag people down into the outer world of the senses and materialism could not touch him. He also sought to live in purity of body, so that his soul would not be touched by luciferic enticements and temptations. The Essenes had developed a lifestyle where Lucifer and Araman could not touch them. Jesus of Nazareth's growth and development had been such that he was able to relate to the Essenes in a way that would not have been possible for other people at the time unless they had actually become Essenes themselves. Jesus of Nazareth was permitted to enter the very center of the Essene order, the most sacred rooms where solitude reigned. He was able to do so as far as the extremely strict rules permitted, and he was able to talk with Essenes in a way in which they would normally only talk among themselves. He was able to initiate himself in the most profound rules of the Essene order. He thus came to know how individual Essenes felt, what they sought to achieve, and how they lived. Above all, he came to know from experience, and this is one of the aspects that matter, the ultimate inner achievement possible in his day, which was to perfect oneself to the point where it was, once again, possible to be in touch with the most ancient sacred revelation. One day he had a significant experience as he was leaving the Essene community. Walking through the gate of the isolated Essene dwelling place, he saw two figures who appeared to be fleeing, rushing away from either side of the gate. He had the feeling that Lucifer and Araman were present. The experience was repeated a number of times, always in a similar kind of vision. The Essene order included large numbers of people. They had their settlements everywhere, as I have said, and were, in a way, respected in spite of the fact that their social life was very different from that of other people. The cities they visited built special gates for them because Essenes were not permitted to walk through gates that had paintings on them. If they wanted to enter a town and came to a gate with an image on it, they would turn round and enter the town at another point where there were no images. There was a reason for this in the Essene doctrine of perfection, and the rule was that nothing by way of legend, myth, or religious subject should ever be shown in the form of an image. The Essenes thus sought to escape the Luciferic element that lived in the image-creating impulse. Jesus of Nazareth got to know the image-free Essene gates on his travels, and again and again he would perceive Lucifer and Araman as invisible images on those gates where visible images were taboo. Those were significant experiences in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. What was the outcome of the significant experiences Jesus of Nazareth had in his many conversations with Essenes who had reached a high level of perfection? Something which depressed him deeply, causing untold pain and suffering, for he had to say to himself, that is a strictly enclosed community. Here present-day people seek to get in touch with the powers of the spirit, the divine and spiritual world. So 
Even in the present age, something exists within humanity that seeks to restore the connection. The question is, at what cost? At the cost of this Essene community, leading a life which others could not lead. For if all people had lived the the Essene life, that life would in fact have been impossible. He saw something that weighed heavily on his heart. Where do Lucifer and Araman escape to when they flee from the Essene gates? They escape to places where the souls of other people are. This, then, was the point humanity had reached. A community had to shut itself off in order to find the connection with the divine and spiritual world. And in doing so, being able to develop their own social cohesion only by shutting out other people, they condemned those others to fall more and more deeply into the element they, as the Essene community, were seeking to escape. As the Essene community reached higher levels of development, the others had to fall all the more deeply. Because the Essenes lived a life that did not allow Lucifer and Araman to come in contact with them, Araman and Lucifer were all the more powerful in their temptation and enticement of others. This, then, was the experience Jesus of Nazareth had in connection with an esoteric order. In earlier years he had made his own everything that could be known of Jewish law in his day. When the world of demons appeared to his inner vision at a significant moment, he had gained living experience of the level to which pagan rites had sunk. Now he had to learn that in his time a price had to be paid if human beings sought to come closer to the mysteries of the divine and spiritual world. He learned from bitter experience that humanity was living in an age when those who seek to connect with the divine and spiritual world have to do so by living in closed communities and at the cost of others. He realized that this was an age when human hearts cried out in longing for a connection with the divine and spiritual world that would be for all people. All this oppressed him greatly. In this mood, he once had a conversation within the Essene community with the soul of the Buddha. The whole mode of life in that community showed a great deal of similarity with the teachings of the Buddha. Jesus saw himself face to face with the Buddha and heard the Buddha himself say, The path I have shown to humanity does not offer a relationship to the divine and spiritual world for all people. I have established a doctrine which makes it necessary for people to close themselves off if they are to grasp its higher aspects and enter into them. It thus became clearly, blindingly apparent to Jesus of Nazareth that the Buddha had established a doctrine which presupposes that apart from the people who follow his teachings most closely, there also had to be people who could not follow them thus closely. How could the Buddha and his disciples have walked the roads, bowl in hand, to collect alms, if there had not been people to give them those alms? And he now heard the Buddha say that his doctrine was such that not all human beings, whatever their situation in life, 
could follow it. In the three periods of life that preceded his baptism in the Jordan, Jesus of Nazareth had thus perceived the potential for development that existed in his time. He did not learn this in an abstract way, but from direct personal experience. He had been in closest possible touch with the teachings of ancient Jewish laws, and the light of this had shone forth in him as an inspiration, enabling him to experience an echo of the revelations given to Moses and the prophets. He had also realized that for people with the physical constitution of his time, it was no longer possible to take such things in fully. Times had changed since the day when the ancient Jewish laws were truly meaningful. He had seen how decay of the pagan mysteries had called up a world of demons. This too he had learned from direct personal contact, an experience in the higher world at a time when he had drawn to him not only the people who had fallen into misery and pain because their places of worship had fallen into decay, but also the demons that gathered in the place of sacrifice, replacing the good pagan powers of old. In the six years immediately preceding his baptism in the Jordan, he had also discovered that in spite of the demands of the future, it was impossible for people at large to learn something of the most profound and secret knowledge possessed by the Essene order. A study of the Akashic record in this field makes us realize that inner soul experience caused sufferings of a kind that no other soul on earth would have been able to suffer. It may well be that the words I have just spoken are not easily understood, especially in our present day and age. Let me bring in something else, therefore. In telling you more of the fifth gospel, I shall have to speak of the way those sufferings grew to enormous proportions in the time between the baptism in the Jordan and the mystery of Golgotha. Today someone may well ask why it was altogether necessary for such a sublime soul to suffer. People have strange ideas on the subject today. If I am to speak of the full depths of suffering borne by Jesus and later the Christ, I shall have to make you aware of the many misunderstandings which are liable to arise in this respect. I have mentioned several times, also here in Berlin, that you should read the recently published book on the nature of death by Maurice Metterling, because it shows the kind of absurdities written by someone who has also produced good literary works. One of the absurdities is the statement that a spirit cannot suffer unless it is in a body, only a physical body being capable of suffering. Metterling draws the conclusion that someone who has left his body cannot suffer in the world of the spirit. Anyone who thinks like this may easily also conclude that the Christ, having entered into the body of Jesus of Nazareth, was not able to suffer. I shall, however, have to refer to the profound suffering the Christ went through in the body of Jesus of Nazareth the next time I speak to you. It is strange, though, that someone who is of sound mind can believe that a physical body is capable of suffering.
It is only the soul within the physical body that suffers, for a physical body cannot know pain and suffering. Pain and suffering are located in the soul and spiritual aspects of a body, and physical pain is caused by irregularities in the physical organism. Insofar as the physical body is an organism, irregularities can occur. You may have pulled a muscle, and so on. But the physical body, the physical organization, does not suffer, even if physical matter is pulled from one location to another. In the same way, a sack of straw won't suffer if you throw the straw about. But there is spirit and soul in the living body, and this suffers if something is not the way it should be. The more sublime the element of spirit and soul is, the greater its capacity for suffering. And the greater its sublimity, the more is it able to suffer under impressions gained in spirit and soul. I am telling you this so that you may try to develop a feeling for the suffering of the Zarathustra spirit in those years when it learned that the old revelations were no longer meeting the needs of the human soul. This was the infinite suffering that cannot be compared with any suffering on earth. We come across it when we study the Akashic Record for the period in the life of Jesus of Nazareth we have been considering today. At the end of the period I spoke of last, Jesus of Nazareth had a talk with his mother. This talk then led to his next step. He went to someone with whom he already had some connection through his relationship to the Essene order, John the Baptist. This talk with his mother, which was crucial for what followed in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, will be the subject of my next lecture. Let me say in conclusion that you may consider anything said here about the fifth gospel. Maybe that again. Let me say in conclusion that you may consider anything said here about the fifth gospel has been presented to the best of my ability, because the spiritual powers of our age demand that a number of people should now know these things. Please approach what is said here with some degree of reverence. As I have said on a number of occasions, the outer literary and cultural life in Germany went wild when something was first published about the two Jesus children. Members of the public who are outside our movement are still quite unable to tolerate these things which are brought down from the world of the Spirit. All kinds of things arise then, such as wild passion and the desire to ward off something that comes as a new gospel from the world of the Spirit. Nor is there need for careless talk to reduce these things to the undignified and ridiculous level that was reached when the story of the two Jesus children was told these things should be sacred to us. It is far from easy to speak about these things in the present time, exactly because resistance is extremely powerful in this respect. Basically, this is due to something which I have frequently mentioned, infinite laziness of human souls and minds in our age, not wanting to enter into the more exact detail provided to the science of the spirit, and therefore refusing to accept that such things can be known. The present situation is that on the one hand people thirst and deep down in their souls call out for 
revelations from the world of the spirit. And, on the other hand, the conscious mind is most passionate in its rejection the moment such revelations are presented. Think about these concluding words and take them as an indication as to how we should approach these things when we speak of the fifth gospel. The end of Lecture 7